Chapter 16 Never send a human to do a machine's job. Agent Smith in the film The Matrix The stock market was collapsing, and Jim Simons was worried. It was late December 2018, and Simons and his wife, Marilyn, were at the Beverly Hills Hotel visiting family in the Los Angeles area over the Christmas holiday. Simons, dressed in chino pants and a polo shirt, was trying to relax in a hotel famous for its poolside bungalows and pink and green decor, but he couldn't stop watching the stock market. It was tumbling amid growing concerns about an economic downturn. That month, the S&P 500 index fell nearly 10%, the worst December performance since 1931. At that point, Simons was worth about $23 billion. Somehow, though, each day's loss felt like a fresh punch to the gut. Part of it was that Simons had made substantial financial commitments to his charitable foundation, which employed hundreds of staffers and other organizations. That wasn't really why he was so dismayed, though. Simons knew he'd be more than fine no matter what happened with the market. He just hated losing money, and he was growing anxious about when the pain would stop. Simons reached for a phone to call Ashvin Chabra, a Wall Street veteran hired to run Euclidean Capital, a firm managing the personal money of Simons and his family. Simons told Chabra he was concerned about the market's outlook. It seemed like a good idea to place some negative bets against stocks, moves that would serve as protection in case the sell-off got even worse. Simons asked Chabra's opinion about what they should do. Should we be selling short? Simons asked. Chabra hesitated, suggesting that they avoid acting until the market had calmed, a course of action Simons agreed to follow. A day later, stocks firmed. The collapse was over. Hanging up, neither Simons nor Chabra focused on the rich irony of their exchange. Simons had spent more than three decades pioneering and perfecting a new way to invest. He had inspired a revolution in the financial world, legitimizing a quantitative approach to trading. By then, it seemed everyone in the finance business was trying to invest the Renaissance way, digesting data, building mathematical models to anticipate the direction of various investments, and employing automated trading systems. The establishment had thrown in the towel. Today, even banking giant J.P. Morgan Chase puts hundreds of its new investment bankers and investment professionals through mandatory coding lessons. Simons's success had validated the field of quantitative investing. Jim Simons and Renaissance showed it was possible, says Dario Villani, a PhD in theoretical physics who runs his own hedge fund. The goal of quants like Simons was to avoid relying on emotions and gut instinct. Yet that's exactly what Simons was doing after a few difficult weeks in the market. It was a bit like Oakland A's executive Billy Bean scrapping his statistics to draft a player with the clear look of a star. Simons's phone call is a stark reminder of how difficult it can be to turn decision-making over to computers, algorithms, and models, even, at times, for the inventors of these very approaches. His conversation with Chabra helps explain the faith investors have long placed in stock and bond pickers dependent on judgment, experience, and old-fashioned research. By 2019, however, confidence in the traditional approach had waned. Years of poor performance had investors fleeing actively managed stock mutual funds, or those professing an ability to beat the market's returns. 
At that point, these funds, most of which embraced traditional approaches to investing, controlled just half of the money entrusted by clients in stock mutual funds, down from 75% a decade earlier. The other half of the money was in index funds and other so-called passive vehicles, which simply aimed to match the market's returns, acknowledging how challenging it is to top the market. Increasingly, it seemed, once dependable investing tactics, such as grilling corporate managers, scrutinizing balance sheets, and using instinct and intuition to bet on major global economic shifts amounted to too little. Sometimes, those methods helped cripple the reputations of some of Wall Street's brightest stars. In the years leading up to 2019, John Paulson, who made billions predicting the 2007 subprime credit crisis, suffered deep losses and shocking client defections. David Einhorn, a poker-playing hedge fund manager, once known as King David for anticipating Lehman Brothers' 2008 collapse, saw his own clients bolt amid poor performance. In Newport Beach, California, Bill Gross, an investor known to chafe when employees at bond powerhouse PIMCO spoke or even made eye contact with him, saw his returns slip ahead of his shocking departure from the firm. Even Warren Buffett's performance waned. His Berkshire Hathaway trailed the S&P 500 over the previous 5, 10, and 15 years leading up to May 2019. Part of the problem was that traditional, actively managed funds no longer wielded an information advantage over their rivals. Once, sophisticated hedge funds, mutual funds, and others had the luxury of poring over annual reports and other financial releases to uncover useful nuggets of overlooked information. Today, almost any type of corporate financial figure is a keystroke or news feed away and can be captured instantly by machines. It's almost impossible to identify facts or figures not fully appreciated by rival investors. At the same time, a crackdown on insider trading, as well as a series of regulatory changes aimed at ensuring that certain investors couldn't obtain better access to corporate information, resulted in a more even playing field reducing the advantages wielded by even the most sophisticated, fundamental investors. No longer could big hedge funds receive calls from brokers advising them of the imminent announcement of a piece of news, or even a shift in the bank's own view on a stock. Today, the fastest-moving firms often hold an edge. In late August 2018, shares of a small cancer drug company called Geron Corporation soared 25%, after its partner, Johnson & Johnson, posted a job listing. The opening suggested that a key regulatory decision for a drug the two companies were developing might be imminent, a piece of news that escaped all but those with the technology to instantly and automatically scour for job listings and similar real-time information. Quant investors had emerged as the dominant players in the finance business. As of early 2019, they represented close to a third of all stock market trades, a share that had more than doubled since 2013. Spoils have accrued from that dominance. In 2018, Simons made an estimated $1.5 billion, while the founders of rival quant firm Two Sigma Investments earned $700 million each. Ray Dalio of Bridgewater Associates, which is a systematic, rules-based investment firm, but not quantitative, made $1 billion as well. Israel Englander, Simons's combatant in the fight over the two renegade Russian traders, pulled in $500 million. 
In early 2019, Ken Griffin, who focuses on quant and other strategies at his Chicago-based firm Citadel, dropped Jaws after he spent $238 million for a New York penthouse, the most expensive home ever sold in the country. Griffin already had purchased several floors of a Chicago condominium for nearly $60 million, as well as a Miami penthouse for the same amount, not to mention $500 million for a pair of paintings by Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning. There are reasons to think the advantages that firms like Renaissance enjoy will only expand amid an explosion of new kinds of data that their computer trading models can digest and parse. IBM has estimated that 90% of the world's data sets have been created in the last two years alone, and that 40 zettabytes, or 44 trillion gigabytes of data, will be created by 2020, a 300-fold increase from 2005. Today, almost every kind of information is digitized and made available as part of huge data sets, the kinds that investors once only dreamed of tapping. The rage among investors is for alternative data, which includes just about everything imaginable, including instant information from sensors and satellite images around the world. Creative investors test for money-making correlations and patterns by scrutinizing the tones of executives on conference calls traffic in the parking lots of retail stores, records of auto insurance applications, and recommendations by social media influencers. Rather than wait for figures on agricultural production, quants examine sales of farm equipment or satellite images of crop yields. Bills of lading for cargo containers can give a sense of global shifts. Systematic traders can even get cell phone-generated data on which aisles and even which shelves consumers are pausing to browse within stores. If you seek a sense of the popularity of a new product, Amazon reviews can be scraped. Algorithms are being developed to analyze the backgrounds of commissioners and others at the Food and Drug Administration to predict the likelihood of a new drug's approval. To explore these new possibilities, hedge funds have begun to hire a new type of employee, what they call data analysts or data hunters who focus on digging up new data sources, much like what Sandor Strauss did for Renaissance in the mid-1980s. All the information is crunched to get a better sense of the current state and trajectory of the economy, as well as the prospects of various companies. More adventurous investors may even use it to prepare for a potential crisis if, say, they see a series of unusual pizza deliveries at the Pentagon in the midst of an international incident. Exponential growth in computer processing power and storage capabilities has given systematic traders new capabilities to sift through all that data. According to Singularity Hub, by around 2025, $1,000 will likely buy a computer with the same processing power as the human brain. Already, hedge fund firm Two Sigma has built a computing system with more than 100 teraflops of power meaning it can process 100 trillion calculations a second, and more than 11 petabytes of memory, the equivalent of five times the data stored in all U.S. academic libraries. All that power allows quants to find and test many more predictive signals than ever before. Instead of the hit-and-miss strategy of trying to find signals using creativity and thought, a Renaissance computer specialist says, now you can just throw a class of formulas at a machine learning engine and test out millions of different possibilities. 
Years after Simons' team at Renaissance adopted machine learning techniques, other quants have begun to embrace these methods. Renaissance anticipated a transformation in decision-making that's sweeping almost every business and walk of life. More companies and individuals are accepting and embracing models that continuously learn from their successes and failures. As investor Matthew Grenade has noted, Amazon, Tencent, Netflix, and others that rely on dynamic, ever-changing models are emerging dominant. The more data that's fed to the machines, the smarter they're supposed to become. A quip by novelist Gary Steingart sums up the future path of the finance industry and the direction of broader society. When the shrinks for their kids are replaced by algorithms, that'll be the end. There'll be nothing left. For all the enthusiasm building around the quantitative approach, its limitations also are clear. It's not easy to process the information and discover accurate signals in all that noisy data. Some quants have argued that picking stocks is harder for a machine than choosing an appropriate song, recognizing a face, or even driving a car. It remains hard to teach machines to distinguish between a blueberry muffin and a chihuahua. Some big firms, including London's MAN AHL, mostly use machine learning algorithms to determine how and when to make their trades or to map connections between companies and do other kinds of research, rather than to develop automated investment decisions. For all the advantages quant firms have, the investment returns of most of these trading firms haven't been that much better than those of traditional firms doing old-fashioned research, with Renaissance and a few others the obvious exceptions. In the five years leading up to spring of 2019, quant-focused hedge funds gained about 4.2% a year on average, compared with a gain of 3.3% for the average hedge fund in the same period. These figures don't include results from secretive funds that don't share their results, like Medallion. Quantitative investors face daunting challenges because the information they sift is always changing, unlike data in other fields, such as physics, and pricing histories for stocks and other investments are relatively limited. Say you're trying to predict how stocks will perform over a one-year horizon, Richard Dewey, a veteran quant, says. Because we only have decent records back to 1900, there are only 118 non-overlapping one-year periods to look at in the U.S. And it can be hard to build a trading system for some kinds of investments, such as troubled debt, which relies on judge rulings, legal maneuverings, and creditor negotiations. For those reasons, there likely will remain pockets of the market where savvy traditional investors prosper, especially those focused on longer-term investing that algorithmic, computer-driven investors tend to shy away from. The rise of Renaissance and other computer-programmed traders has bred concern about their impact on the market and the potential for a sudden sell-off, perhaps sparked by computers acting autonomously. On May 6, 2010, the Dow Jones Industrial Average plummeted 1,000 points in what came to be known as the flash crash, a harrowing few minutes in which hundreds of stocks momentarily lost nearly all their value. Investors pointed the finger at computer-programmed trading firms and said the collapse highlighted the destabilizing role computerized trading can play, but the market quickly rebounded. Prosecutors later charged a trader operating out of his West London home for manipulating a stock market index futures contract, 
laying the groundwork for the decline. To some, the sudden downturn, which was accompanied by little news to explain the move, suggested the rise of the machine had ushered in a new era of risk and volatility. Automated trading by computers is a scary concept for many, much as airplanes flown by autopilot and self-driving cars can frighten, despite evidence that those machines improve safety. There's reason to believe computer traders can amplify or accelerate existing trends. Author and former risk manager Richard Bookstaber has argued that risks today are significant because the embrace of quant models is system-wide across the investment world, suggesting that future troubles for these investors would have more impact than in the past. As more embrace quantitative trading, the very nature of financial markets could change. New types of errors could be introduced, some of which have yet to be experienced, making them harder to anticipate. Until now, markets have been driven by human behavior, reflecting the dominant roles played by traders and investors. If machine learning and other computer models become the most influential factors in markets, they may become less predictable and maybe even less stable, since human nature is roughly constant, while the nature of this kind of computerized trading can change rapidly. The dangers of computerized trading are generally overstated, however. There are so many varieties of quant investing that it is impossible to generalize about the subject. Some quants employ momentum strategies, so they intensify the selling by other investors in a downturn. But other approaches, including smart beta, factor investing, and style investing, are the largest and fastest-growing investment categories in the quant world. Some of these practitioners have programmed their computers to buy when stocks get cheap, helping to stabilize the market. It's important to remember that market participants have always tended to pull back and do less trading during market crises, suggesting that any reluctance by quants to trade isn't so very different from past approaches. If anything, markets have become more placid as quant investors have assumed dominant positions. Humans are prone to fear, greed, and outright panic, all of which tend to sow volatility in financial markets. Machines could make markets more stable if they elbow out individuals governed by biases and emotions. And computer-driven decision-making in other fields, such as the airline industry, has generally led to fewer mistakes. By the summer of 2019, Renaissance's Medallion Fund had racked up average annual gains before investor fees of about 66% since 1988, and a return after fees of approximately 39%. Despite RIEF's early stumbles, the firm's three hedge funds open for outside investors have also outperformed rivals and market indexes. In June 2019, Renaissance managed a combined $65 billion, making it one of the largest hedge fund firms in the world, and sometimes represented as much as 5% of daily stock market trading volume, not including high-frequency traders. The firm's success is a useful reminder of the predictability of human behavior. Renaissance studies the past because it is reasonably confident investors will make similar decisions in the future. At the same time, staffers embrace the scientific method to combat cognitive and emotional biases, suggesting there's value in this philosophical approach when tackling challenging problems of all kinds. They propose hypotheses and then test, measure, and adjust their theories 
trying to let data, not intuition and instinct, guide them. The approach is scientific, Simon says. We use very rigorous statistical approaches to determine what we think is underlying. Another lesson of the Renaissance experience is that there are more factors and variables influencing financial markets and individual investments than most realize or can deduce. Investors tend to focus on the most basic forces, but there are dozens of factors, perhaps whole dimensions of them, that are missed. Renaissance is aware of more of the forces that matter, along with the overlooked mathematical relationships that affect stock prices and other investments than most anyone else. It's a bit like how bees see a broad spectrum of colors and flowers, a rainbow that humans are oblivious to when staring at the same flora. Renaissance doesn't see all the market's hues, but they see enough of them to make a lot of money, thanks in part to the firm's reliance on ample amounts of leverage. Renaissance has endured challenging periods in the past, however, and it stands to reason that the firm will find it difficult to match its past success as markets evolve and staffers try to keep up. In moments of honest reflection, current and former employees marvel at their gains and acknowledge the hurdles ahead. The gains Simons and his colleagues have achieved might suggest there are more efficiencies in the market than most assume. In truth, there likely are fewer inefficiencies and opportunities for investors than generally presumed. For all the unique data, computer firepower, special talent, and trading and risk management expertise Renaissance has gathered, the firm only profits on barely more than 50% of its trades, a sign of how challenging it is to try to beat the market, and how foolish it is for most investors to try. Simons and his colleagues generally avoid predicting pure stock moves, it's not clear any expert or system can reliably predict individual stocks, at least over the long term, or even the direction of financial markets. What Renaissance does is try to anticipate stock moves relative to other stocks, to an index, to a factor model, and to an industry. During his time helping to run the Medallion Fund, Elwin Burlikamp came to view the narratives that most investors latch onto to explain price moves as quaint, even dangerous because they breed misplaced confidence that an investment can be adequately understood and its futures divined. If it was up to Burlicamp, stocks would have numbers attached to them, not names. I don't deny that earnings reports and other business news surely move markets, Burlicamp says. The problem is that so many investors focus so much on these types of news that nearly all of their results cluster very near their average. Days after Rebecca Mercer had David Magerman tossed from the poker night festivities at New York's St. Regis Hotel, Renaissance fired the computer scientist, ending any chance of a rapprochement between the warring sides. Magerman filed two lawsuits, a federal civil rights claim against Robert Mercer and a wrongful termination suit against Renaissance and Mercer. In both cases, he alleged that Mercer had him terminated from Renaissance for engaging in protected activity. Mercer's conduct is an outrageous attempt to deny Magerman his constitutional and federal statutory rights, stated the 10-page complaint filed in federal court in Philadelphia. Magerman acknowledged that Renaissance's employee handbook prohibited him from publicly disparaging the firm or its employees, but he said he had obtained approval from at least one Renaissance executive before sharing his concerns with the Wall Street Journal earlier that year. Magerman nursed hurt feelings. 
it still bothered him that his old workmates had given him the cold shoulder. Slowly, both he and his former firm began moving past their dispute, though. As unhappy as Magerman had been about Mercer's political activity, and as adamant as he was about his right to speak out, he never had wanted to anger Simons, Brown, or his other colleagues. Some days, Magerman even missed being close to Mercer. I worked for Renaissance for over 20 years. They're the one place I ever worked in my professional life, he told a reporter. I had an obligation to inform the public, and that was the end of it, as far as I'm concerned, except that I got suspended and fired. In 2018, after months of negotiations, the two sides reached an amicable settlement, with Magerman exiting Renaissance with the right to invest in Medallion like other retirees. Soon, Magerman, now 50 years old, adopted a new cause, combating powerful social media companies. He gave nearly half a million dollars to a coalition lobbying to break up Facebook and accepted a senior position at a Philadelphia venture capital firm to work with fledgling data-related companies. I feel very good about where I am now, mentally and personally, he said late in 2018. I wouldn't quite go as far to say there's no hard feelings, but, you know, I've definitely moved on. After Mercer stepped down as Renaissance's co-chief executive officer in November 2017, staffers were skeptical much would change at the company. Mercer was still employed at Renaissance, and he continued to be within earshot of Brown. Surely he'd go on reining in Brown's impulses, these employees said. Unlike other researchers, Mercer reported directly to Brown, a sign of his continued prominence. How much different were things really going to be? Almost immediately after announcing he was stepping down, however, Mercer assumed a less prominent role at the firm. He didn't participate in senior meetings and seemed out of the loop. The shift sparked nervousness among employees who worried that Brown would rush into ill-advised decisions without Mercer to help guide him. Staffers feared the change would hurt Renaissance's returns at a time more investment firms were rushing into quant trading, resulting in more potential competition. Brown seemed to sense the dangers. He responded by tweaking his management style. Brown still kept the same manic pace, sleeping in the Murphy bed in his office most weekday nights. But he began leaning on other senior staffers, asking for input from a mixed group of colleagues. The shift steadied the firm and helped Medallion end 2018 with a flourish, scoring gains of about 45% that year, besting the performance of almost every investment firm in a year the S&P 500 dropped over 6%, its worst performance since 2008. Renaissance's three funds open for investors, the Renaissance Institutional Equities Fund, the Renaissance Institutional Diversified Alpha Fund, and the Renaissance Institutional Diversified Global Equity Fund, all topped the market as well. Money poured into the three funds, and Renaissance's overall assets surged past $60 billion making it one of the largest hedge fund firms in the world. I think everything is under control, Simon said, late in 2018. As long as you keep making money for investors, they're generally pretty happy. In the spring of 2018, Simon celebrated his 80th birthday. His family's foundation marked the occasion with a series of lectures focused on Simon's contributions to the field of physics. Academics and others toasted Simons at a nearby hotel. A month later, 
he hosted family and friends on his ship, the Archimedes, for a nighttime cruise around Manhattan. A distinct stoop in Simons's shoulders accented his advancing age, but he was razor sharp, asking probing questions and supplying humorous quips throughout the festivities. I promise not to turn 80 again, he joked to the crowd. Simon seemed to have arrived at a comfortable landing spot in his life. He had pushed Mercer out of the top job at Renaissance, relieving pressure, and the company was thriving with Brown at the helm. Even the Magerman imbroglio seemed in the rearview mirror. Simon still felt pressures, though. Important life goals remained unmet, and it didn't take a PhD in mathematics to understand he likely didn't have a huge amount of time to accomplish them. Simons maintained a daily routine that seemed aimed at improving his chances of satisfying his remaining ambitions. Most mornings, Simons woke around 6.30 a.m. and headed to Central Park to walk several miles and exercise with a trainer. On day-long hikes organized by his foundation, Simons usually led the way, leaving young staffers huffing and puffing behind him. Simons even switched to slightly healthier electronic cigarettes, at least during some meetings, his beloved merits tucked deep into a breast pocket. Simons continued to check in with Brown and other Renaissance executives, chairing meetings of the firm's board of directors. Once in a long while, he suggested an idea to improve the operation. Simons's focus was elsewhere, however. That year, he spent $20 million backing various Democratic political candidates, helping the party regain control of the House of Representatives. The Simons Foundation, with an annual budget of $450 million, had emerged as the nation's second-largest private funder of research in basic science. Math for America, the organization Simons helped found, provided annual stipends of $15,000 to over 1,000 top math and science teachers in New York City. It also hosted hundreds of annual seminars and workshops, creating a community of skilled and enthusiastic teachers. There were signs the initiative was helping public schools retain the kinds of teachers who previously had bolted for private industry. One can see contradictions, even hypocrisies, in some of Simons's life decisions. Renaissance spent years legally converting short-term gains into long-term profits, saving its executives billions of dollars in taxes, even as Simons decried a lack of spending by the government on basic education in science, mathematics, and other areas. Some strident critics, including author and activist Naomi Klein, have questioned the growing influence of society's benevolent billionaires, who sometimes single-handedly allocate resources and determine priorities in the nonprofit world at a time of stretched government budgets. Simons also can be criticized for hiring waves of top scientists and mathematicians for his hedge fund, even while lamenting about the talent that private industry siphoned from the public sphere and how many schools are unable to retain top teachers. Simons hasn't poured his billions into vanity projects, however. He dedicated cash and creativity to efforts that may benefit millions. There are convincing signs his charitable investments could lead to real change, maybe even breakthroughs, perhaps during his lifetime. Simons could be remembered for what he did with his fortune, as well as how he made it.